Why did you say what you said? You ever ask yourself that? Why did I say what I just said? Usually accompanied with, why can't I keep my big mouth shut? (laughs) That happens, you know. But sometimes we're awake enough to really wonder, why do I say what I say? When John was young, probably not yet 20, he started to follow an unlikely teacher, (laughs) a rabbi from a low-quality town, Nazareth. He spent three years walking and talking with Jesus. He was witness to an untold number of miracles and multiplied hours of teaching. And, to get to where we want to go today, he heard hundreds, probably more than a thousand conversations. Then, for decades, John taught in churches. Over the years, he read what James decided to write. And then all the letters that Paul put together. After that, he discovered what Peter wrote. The three other Gospels were written, and John certainly had a chance to read them all, to see what Matthew, Mark, and Luke chose to say. Everyone else who wrote any part of the New Testament wrote, and probably John had a chance to read every part. Now he's getting old. And the Holy Spirit moves him to write the good news, the gospel of Jesus. What will John say? What will he choose to record? There's all that written and there's so much. All that he experienced. How do you choose of particular interest to us today out of a thousand conversations that John heard? Which should he record? Almost incredible. Incredibly, he chooses only two personal conversations of Jesus' ministry to share with all of those considering the good news. Only two. Two very different conversations with two fantastically different people. These two people represent absolutely opposite poles of society in almost every way. We've spent some time, if you've been here, considering what Nicodemus said to Jesus and heard in return, that first conversation. Today we're going to take a look at Jesus' conversation with a most unlikely person, a poor Samaritan woman of ill repute. And we'll compare that with Jesus' interaction with the rich, well-regarded ruler Nicodemus. But first, let's remind ourselves of that conversation in our Modern Bibles, we find John's work divided into chapters. John didn't actually write chapter 1, chapter (laughs) 2. But we've divided it up. It helps us find it. So this pericope begins chapter 3. In answer to Nicodemus' question, Jesus shocks him by telling him he has to be born again. (laughs) Then he helps him to see that it's the spiritual he's talking about. He even begins to introduce Nicodemus to the Holy Spirit. Jesus does berate him for not understanding and he gives him a clear picture of who he, Jesus, is and how he will accomplish what he will do. Very scholarly conversation. Very scholarly. But as to emotion, it's like antiseptic. It's that (laughs) there's no emotion to speak of. Lots of brain, but not much heart in that conversation. And now we come to the polar opposite. 
Let's read the whole conversation and then, then we'll come back and talk about it. It's in John chapter 4 if you want to follow in your own Bible. Jesus, verse 3, left Judea and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. Verse 6, Jacob's well was there. Jesus was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him that he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here and draw water. Jesus said to her, Oh, call your husband. Come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You were right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband what you said is true <laughs> the woman said to him sir I perceive that you are a prophet <laughs> yeah I think so <laughs> our fathers worshipped on this mountain but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship Jesus said to her woman believe me the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father you worship what you do not know we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Verse 28, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. In verse 39, we read that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And in verse 41, we read, And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Well, that's a pretty incredible conversation that Jesus had with this woman at Jacob's well. But then, so was the conversation with Nicodemus. These conversations could not be more different because... Well, you couldn't find two more different people. <laughs> In that society, he carried a tremendous privilege simply because he was male. Females, even in Israel, it was better in Israel, but they had no more power, if you will, than their spouses or fathers or masters chose to give them. He was ethnically privileged. 
he was in an ethnically advantaged position. She uh, was not. Okay, the Samaritans were the descendants of the Jews who Nebuchadnezzar thought not worth capturing 400 years earlier when he blasted through Israel. They weren't even worth capturing. And it gets worse. Besides being rejects, even as slaves, they didn't, they didn't want them for slaves. They had intermixed with whatever roaming band of people wandered through the area, so they're half-breeds. They're half-breed Jews. The low-class people that good Jews had nothing to do with. Socially, she was a mess. What kind of woman comes alone to a well in the country at noon in the Middle East in the first century? Hmm? (laughs) Even her own people wanted nothing to do with her. Nicodemus, on the other hand, he was on the A-list. Getting him to come for them was like one of us having a U.S. senator come to our house for Christmas dinner. That's what it would be like. Monetarily, he was Hank Bank. (laughs) I heard that once. I actually had to ask what it meant. (laughs) Sorry, it was a little slow. She, well, it's not like there was a servant getting her water, okay? (laughs) He was educated. She was definitely ignorant as you study the language she used. Virtually no education. He knew the scriptures. Probably had huge sections memorized. She'd heard some stories, you know, but probably nothing much else. In character, well, I think actually we've got that one figured out. (laughs) He was a respected ruler and she was a social outcast. And when it comes to caring, you know, caring about life, about truth, he was serious. She was flippant. Oh, living water, yeah, give me some of that. Then I don't have to work anymore for getting water. Yeah, (laughs) let's do that. What's that? But what she knew, well, if she'd actually met Nicodemus, she would have known that he was important and she was a nobody. And yet, they both chose words to share with Jesus. (laughs) She and he had a conversation with the Son of God. Okay, two very different conversations. So, it started with how they came to meet Jesus. He came seeking. He looked for Jesus. You know, what kind of guy seeks out a man who is very likely to upset all you believe in? Well, a guy with confidence. One who's emotionally secure in himself. Self-assured people are willing to ask the difficult questions. They can face life's tough issues because, well, they're tough. But our poor women, she had that practiced indifference. Oh, it doesn't matter to me. I don't care what you say. (laughs) Yeah, right. She suffers from narcissism and inordinate focus on herself. Self-love that's in reality self-loathing. Probably she had no assurance of her own worth growing up as a child. Combine that with years of abuse and, well, misuse in her life and we begin to see that She actually has no confidence in herself. And so she builds up this shell of self-protection, you know, the fake tough. So how does Jesus fake through to her? How will we do that? And once each of these two did start to speak with Jesus, how were they seeing themselves compared to him? 
it's pretty obvious that Nicodemus came thinking he was above Jesus. You know, more educated, more intelligent, more successful. Not true, it didn't take long for him to find out he was wrong. But our lowly woman, she might have tried to act otherwise, but she knew. She knew she was way below him. Way below everyone. Nicodemus came looking like he needed nothing. He looked like success. Probably thought he didn't need anything. He was looking, though, for pure intellectual fulfillment. Satisfy my understanding. Man, I like that. Hours of searching out the truth. Oh, yeah, that's a wonderful thing. I absolutely love that. But to think you need nothing? And yet, there was all those miracles. Signs that must have tickled poor Nicodemus' brain. He... They didn't quite fit his understanding of reality. So maybe he did have a little bit of perceived need there. She, on the other hand, okay, was clearly desperately needy. Anybody could see that. So although she insulated herself emotionally, that self-protection response, she was wide open intellectually. Just tell me. What's the truth? She's ready to take in whatever Jesus dished out that way. But of all the differences in these two, I think the most important is how they came to meet Jesus at all. He came to find Jesus. Heard about him, wanted to know. He sought him out specifically so that he could learn the truth. But Jesus came to find her. That statement of John's, he had to pass through Samaria. Most Jews would travel miles out of the way. They'd go down to Jericho, across the river, miles up the river, climb back up over, you know, across the river and up over the hills again to get to Judah. Also, they go around Samaria, all to avoid contact with the Samaritans. In fact, there were people that wouldn't even walk on a road that they knew a Samaritan had just been on because the dust of that dirty, stinking half-breed might settle on me. Really, they actually said that. But Jesus had to go to Samaria. Had to? Why? To find her. That's why. And of course all the other Samaritans. He went on purpose. Anyone else on the face of the earth that day would have told you she was nothing. Completely worthless. But the Son of God, the Creator of all that is, went out of His way to find her. To bring her the good news because he so loves all the world. Two very different people. So what kind of words does Jesus share with them? How did Jesus deal with these two when he spoke to them? Well, first, he is direct with both. And he will not compromise the truth. Not for anybody does Jesus compromise the truth. And yeah, perhaps we ought to, in that area, treat everyone the same. <laughs> Jesus knew that Nicodemus needed intellectual fulfillment. He needed answers to complex questions. You know, please, come to me. I'd love that. I'll go all day long with you. I don't care. I love that sort of thing. She, on the other hand, needed emotional fulfillment. Oh, Lord, please save me from this. <laughs> I, do I have to do this emotional thing? You know, okay, don't be mad. Give me a break. I'm a guy. 
ladies, we just don't have the emotional fortitude you do. I've read tons of counseling materials, all sorts of psychology journal stuff, and it's simply true. Women have vastly greater capacity for emotion physically. Their brains are wired differently. They have much more ability to have emotional expressions than men do. And of all women, our woman at the well needed assurance of her value in God's eyes before she could hear the message of salvation. She couldn't hear without that. Remember, when she met guys, she knew that they knew what she was. So what's she going to be thinking? Maybe something like, well, once we've stopped playing games here and pretending I'm okay, will you reject me? Or try to use me? Or will this guy finally be the one to help me? Emotion, one of the first things anybody will tell you when you go through an emotionally trying event is not to make decisions until some time has passed. Why? Because your mind, the intellect, does not work as well with all those hormones from your emotions are inundating it. The brain is a pharmacy, as psychologists say. It will dump chemicals on you when you experience intense emotion. So a woman with a lifetime of emotional garbage piled on her, Jesus sought first to meet her emotional needs so that she could hear the message. Now, he didn't do this with Nicodemus. I mean, you try to dump emotion on an intellectual, they're going to run, okay? <laughs> but they have a need for intellectual fulfillment. People who seek knowledge must find it before they can hear the good news, just as their counterparts need emotional support. So Jesus matched his conversation to their need. One last important point as to Jesus dealing with them Jesus veiled his identity to Nicodemus. He did not come right out and say it. In a sense, he made him work for it. And, and it's a truth. You can't indiscriminately dump truth on people who seek intellectual fulfillment. It needs to be a process. They need to go through the steps. But on the other hand, Jesus was open in his claims to her. He leads her to say it. He really he gets her to say it. And then he just blatantly affirms his identity. Yep, that's me. Well, that's kind of easy, actually, <laughs> once you get past all that emotional stuff. <sighs> so how did these two respond to Jesus? How did they respond? Now, remember their starting point. Nicodemus knew what true religion was. So he thought he had it handled. <laughs> you know, just show me how to fit your signs into my picture and I'll be okay. I'll be all right. Everything will be fine. And after a manner, he was correct. She, on the other hand was pretty confused about her religious identity. She actually said, our father Jacob, to a Jew. Let's just slap him in the face. Jacob is the father of the Jews, not you half-breed Samaritans. Don't forget God named him Israel. You know, that's how Jews felt. And even calling that well, Jacob's well, that was just a local legend. A story that was designed to make the Samaritans feel important. Nicodemus at least knew the foundations of truth, so Jesus could build on that. She didn't have a clear understanding at all. Her understanding of true faith was all mushed up with weird ideas from the world. 
And so Jesus had to correct her. But she, of all people, did know one thing for sure. This world needs a Savior. And she was expecting him to come. And once she knew that Jesus wasn't going to reject her or use her, she was ready for him to simply declare who he was. Once we show this type of person that they can trust us, that we will care for them and not use them, they will listen to us tell them about Jesus. On the other hand, Nicodemus, he didn't come understanding he had a need. (laughs) This is one of the reasons it often takes so very long to walk a mind person through the process. The concept of need, especially their own, is a new one to them. And because they are focused on the intellect, it takes a long time for them to process all the facts. Oh, but when they do, they are sure. (laughs) They are really sure and pity the poor guy who gets into an argument with one of these people once they know Christ because they know the answers. Back to our woman. She didn't. Kind of an odd thing when you consider her clear need. She tried to deflect the truth of her need. Okay, so you want to bring up my life? Well, what about this religion deal? Come on, tell me about that. What? <laughs> what does that have to do with this? Curiously, Jesus lets her get away with it. I don't know if <laughs> she didn't run away, and it was clear she knew he was going to hang in there. So maybe Jesus recognized this is how she admits her need. Maybe I don't know. His answer is pretty direct. Things are changing. Your people don't know what they're talking about. We do. And then he lays out one of the greatest spiritual truths. He just lays it right out in front of her. And I can't pass it by without reading it again. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. I don't have a husband. (laughs) Ouch. Truth. But the Father was seeking for her to worship Him. And Nicodemus, he could figure this whole thing out. He was able, with some pretty difficult imagery, to grasp Jesus' superiority, (laughs) probably His claim to deity, as well as this very important truth, the spiritual truth of it. And a lot more he understood of that. Spirit and truth. She couldn't get it without being directly told. She had to be blatantly told what worship was and what it was supposed to be like. Now she did catch the part about things changing. And she did, of course, see Jesus' superiority. She put two and two together and said, wait a minute. There's a Messiah coming who will teach all about spiritual things. She's asking... Are you that guy? Relationally, then, she's miles ahead of Nicodemus. She didn't need facts to know who he is. She knew who he was. And that was enough for her. That's it. She just needed to know who he was. Concerning the facts that Jesus gave, Nicodemus was astonished at the facts, but he was wide open to being corrected. She was astonished at some facts, (laughs) some specific facts about her life, but pretty defensive, which is probably why Jesus kind of put off some of those things for a while before he dealt with them. 
Nicodemus was slow and cautious in his response to Jesus. She suddenly and quickly plunged headlong into belief. So maybe this relationship idea, this whole thing isn't so bad after all. Dr. Nick, he did not act in belief for some time. We know he did after three years. It took a long time. She immediately told people about Jesus. Just just like that. Just jumped right out. Then again, she had nothing to lose. She was an outcast. Even among outcasts, she was an outcast. Leaving her mess of a life behind, you know, not a really big deal. Nicodemus, though, he had everything to lose. And eventually he did. He lost his position, lost large parts of his wealth, his social standing, even his safety. He lost all of that to follow Jesus. Why would he do that? Why would Nicodemus sacrifice everything for Jesus? Because of how Jesus responded to him. Which is a point all by itself. Jesus responded to his inquiries. Jesus went to her, brought up life issues when she was flippant, and spiritual matters when she wanted to argue the value of her religion. Jesus reproached him pretty directly. Emotionally, he was secure. He could take it. And, and he responded properly to this direct rebuke. Intellectually, though, he had barriers. Uh, intellectual need to peel the onion. <laughs> one, one piece at a time, please. Don't just cut to the middle. They need to build a cognitive argument to believe. And that takes time. When it came to those embarrassing facts of her life, Jesus states them straight out, dispassionately, but firmly. He didn't pour feelings into those facts. She had enough feelings of her own. Basically, he said, so how's it going, this running your own life thing? Intellectually, ah, she was unhindered, whatever, she was easy. But emotionally, she was quite fragile. This is why Jesus let her take that side trip about religion. She kind of used that to get some time to come to relational trust in him. And this is really fascinating, though we don't want to miss it. When you look at these two very different conversations, you find one thing that's very much the same in them. Jesus contrasted the physical with the spiritual in both cases. You must be born again, he said to Nicodemus. Very direct teaching. Now, okay, he had to step back a little and say, Nicodemus, I'm talking about spiritual things. Oh, yeah. But clearly showing that there is a spiritual that ties to our physical. Jesus used an illustration for her. Give me well water, I'll give you real water. From physical water to the living water of the Spirit. I'm telling you, all people confuse our earthly and the very real spiritual life. And they need help to connect the two. Now, some think you can separate the two. I've seen people live lives that are saturated in sin, using person after person, taking advantage of people. You know, but as long as you give some kind of credit to the man upstairs, it'll all be okay, right? Mm. And then there are those who think that there isn't a spiritual law. Where are you in your spiritual journey? It's 
spiritual journey. How stupid are you? There's no such thing as a spiritual. Okay, maybe we'll just wait on those people. Let God wake them up a little. Sadly, that usually takes place in a tragedy. That's usually the only way some people, many people, will wake up. So, watch for that. You might be able to help them. But you know, some might say, spiritual journey? What do you mean? Uh, maybe you get to stick with them and they'll listen to you as you define the spiritual dimension. Well, for all this talk about how different people can be, we're still a lot alike. A lot alike. Like our two who met Jesus, both were religious. But of course, that's not enough. And both were poor in spirit. Both were spiritually lost. They both needed Jesus to be born again. To say this, a final way, they both admitted they were sinners. Both learned one step at a time who Jesus was and were amazed. They took different steps to Jesus, but when they reached the end, both were rich in belief. They both left behind their past lives. She first left her water bottle, not a small thing in that part of the world. And then her whole life, she just left her whole life behind. He had took some time, but in the end, he abandoned everything. Left his old life behind. And all its advantages, to gain the greatest advantage of all, both became rich in commitment to Christ. Admit, believe, commit. This is all about the ABCs of salvation. Both these conversations, that's what they're about. Do you know how many times John uses the word Savior in his Gospel? I think it will surprise you. Once. Once. That's it. One time. The Samaritans said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. In all his writings, John only used the word one other time. Speaking of himself, he said, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman came to know the love that God has for them. Why do you say what you say? Do we prattle on about things that won't last? Things that really don't matter? Why did Jesus say what he did? Because unlike every other person who ever lived, he alone knows the importance of the spiritual. He knows that only when a person gets the spiritual right can they be both intellectually and emotionally fulfilled? The spiritual has to come first. In fact, the emotional and the intellectual are swallowed up in the agape love that can only be fully experienced as it flows from the Spirit. Do you know that love? Do you share that love? Do the words we use lead people to the pure love of our Savior. Why do you say what you say?